Parashat Yitro by Rav Yaakov Medan At the conclusion of the war against Amalek, Yitro comes to the Israelite camp. There are two ways of understanding his visit. First, the reason that he himself provides, the news of the Exodus. Yitro has a strong personal connection with the Exodus, since he is the father-in-law of Moshe, the savior of Israel. Therefore, he comes to the camp with Tzipporah, Moshe's wife, and their two sons. Second, the reason is left unstated, but it seems very likely on the basis of the juxtaposition of the two episodes in the text that as Amalek's neighbor and ally, Yitro comes to make peace with Israel after Amalek's defeat at Rephidim. While the beginning of the parasha presents the Exodus as the exclusive reason for Yitro's appearance, both reasons find expression in the Torah. We read, Moshe told his father-in-law all that God had done to Paro and to Egypt for the sake of Israel, all the tribulations that had come upon them on the way, and how God had saved them. All that God had done to Paro, referring to the Exodus, while all the tribulations that had come upon them on the way, refers, as we understand it, to the war against Amalek. Both possible explanations that Rashi provides for the expression Vayichad Yitro, which appears nowhere else in Tanakh, are correct. It expresses pleasure, chedva, over the Exodus, and Yitro's sense of partnership in the wonders of God's miracles, or alternatively, or at the same time, sorrow over the defeat of his ally, Amalek. In his declaration of praise to God, Yitro gives thanks for the exodus while ignoring Israel's victory over Amalek. Yitro said, Blessed is God who has saved you from the hand of Egypt and from the hand of Paro, who has saved the nation from the hand of Egypt. When Yitro comes to offer a sacrifice to God, Moshe builds an altar for this purpose. To our understanding, this is the altar of God is my banner, Hashem Nisi, over which Moshe proclaims God's war against Amalek for all generations. The episode of Amalek does not conclude with Yitro's appearance. It continues in the next verse. And it was on the next day that Moshe sat to judge the nation. The nation stood before Moshe from the morning until the evening. What were these lengthy legal procedures about? It is possible that Moshe was occupied with the distribution of the booty from the war against Amalek, Admittedly, I found no Midrashic source to support this possibility. Many years later, David was to set down most forcefully his rule as to a just allocation of the booty of the war against Amalek. Then all the evil and worthless men of the people who had gone with David said, Since they did not go with us, we shall not give them of the spoils that we have recovered, only to each man his wife and children, that they may lead them away and go. Then David said, You shall not do so, my brethren, with that which God has given us, who has preserved us and given the troops that came upon us into our hands, who will obey you in this matter? Rather, the portion of he who goes down to battle shall be the same as he who remains by the equipment. They shall share alike. And it was so from that day onward, and it became a statute and law for Israel until this day. David is not satisfied with a fair allocation of spoils among the soldiers. We read, David came to Tziklag, and sent of the spoils to the elders of Yehuda to his neighbors, saying, Behold, here is a blessing for you from the spoils of God's enemies. The reason that David gives for the fair distribution of the booty from the war against Amalek is the same reason that the Torah provides for a fair allocation of water and man, that which God has given us. Two separate laws, then, pertain to the war against Amalek. Both share the same foundation. God is at war with Amalek. The war against Amalek is God's war. Sometimes the booty is for God alone. Sometimes it is shared equally among all of Israel.
This first law is realized in Shaul's war against Amalek. Now go and smite Amalek and destroy utterly all that is theirs, including oxen and sheep, camels and donkeys. Shaul sins in this regard. He sets aside the best of the sheep and cattle, and the prophet rebukes him. Why have you not listened to God's voice, diving upon the spoils and doing that which is evil in God's eyes? Likewise we find in the war against Arad, which Chazal maintain as having involved Amalek, they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and called the name of the place Hormah. If the war against Amalek is God's war, then the spoils are his. The second law is realized in David's war against Amalek. If the booty belongs to God, and there is no special command to destroy it all, then it must be allocated in the same way as the man that descended from the heavens. Gather of it each man according to his eating, a fair and equitable distribution, since we are all God's children and we are all equal in his eyes. Similar to David's war was the war against Amalek and Rephidim. On the day after the altar was established, Moshe sat in judgment to allocate the booty through Chokum Mishpat, statute and ordinance. Just like David, Moshe faces a difficult task. His camp, too, includes evil and worthless men. Moshe's father-in-law, witnessing his difficulty and the stress of the nation, offers his suggestion as to appointing officers of thousands and officers of hundreds, officers of fifties and officers of tens. One of the views regarding the news that reached Yitro and caused him to visit the Israelite camp is recorded in the Gemara. Rabbi Eliezer Hamodai says, He heard about the giving of the Torah and he came. According to this view, the entire episode of Yitro's visit is not recorded in its chronological place. It belongs after the giving of the Torah. The Amaraim and the commentators are divided on this issue. Ibn Ezra follows the opinion of Rabbi Eliezer Hamodai, explaining at length his claim that this episode actually took place later on. His main argument is that from Moshe's words in Sefer Tvarim, when he recalls the appointment of the judges, it appears that this happened after God told them at Chorev, You have dwelled for too long at this mountain. Take yourselves off and go to the mountain of the Amori, rather than before the giving of the Torah. The difficulty inherent in this interpretation is the question of why the Torah then records the story of Yitro prior to the giving of the Torah. The commentators proposed several different explanations. We shall not elaborate on them here. Still, it seems the difficulty is not solved. The Ramban maintains that the events here are indeed recorded in their chronological order. In between Ramban and Ibn Ezra, there is also an intermediate position, that of the Barbanel and of the Malbim, who divide the parasha into two parts. The first part, verses 1 to 23, takes place prior to the giving of the Torah, in accordance with the order of events in the Torah. And we read here of Yitro coming to the Israelite camp, and then, the next day, advising Moshe to appoint judges. The second part, verses 24 to 27, takes place in the second year, before B'nai Yisrael leave their encampment at Har Sinai, and here Moshe heeds his father-in-law's advice and appoints judges for Israel. Indeed, this accords with the description in Tvarim, where the appointment of the judges comes only after the nation has dwelt for some time at Chorev, and after they have been commanded to leave the mountain and journey toward Eretz Israel. Still, this interpretation requires us to explain why Moshe postpones putting his father-in-law's advice into practice for a full year, and why he ultimately accepts it. We shall adopt the division of the parasha as proposed by Abrabanel and Malbim, adding support for their view from a comparison of the parashiyot and Shmot in Bamidbar and in Dvarim. This comparison offers, to our view, conclusive proof in favor of their interpretation, upon which we shall base our sketch of what happened in the camp following Yitro's advice. 
The description of the appointment of judges in Sefer Dvarim brings together quite clearly two different parshiot. The first is the story of Yitro. You shall seek out from all the nation men of valor, who fear God, men of truth who hate monetary gain. And in Dvarim, give for yourselves men who are wise, understanding, and knowing. In Shmot, and make them heads over the people, officers of thousands and officers of hundreds, and officers of fifties and officers of tens. And in Dvarim, I shall make them heads over you, officers of thousands and officers of hundreds, and officers of fifties and officers of tens. In Shmot, any difficult matter they shall bring to Moshe, but any simple matter they shall judge themselves. And in Dvarim, that which is too difficult for you shall you bring before me, and I shall hear it. The second parasha that is connected to the description of the appointment of judges in Dvarim discusses the appointment of the elders as leaders of the nation at Kivrot Ta'ava. The comparison with the appointment of the elders at Kivrot Ta'ava also arises because of the location of this episode in Sefer Dvarim. After the nation is commanded to journey from Chorev and prior to the sin of the spies, and especially because of the juxtaposition in both sources to the sin of the spies. In light of this juxtaposition, the sin of the spies is viewed as part of the gradual erasing of Moshe's exclusive leadership. The fact that the story in Sefer Dvarim incorporates the two parshiot within itself gives rise to the almost inescapable conclusion that these two parshiot, in other words, the appointment of the judges in the wake of Yitro's advice, and the appointment of the elders at Kibrota Ta'ava, are really two parts of the same story. In light of this assumption, let us try to recreate what happened. Contrary to what the verses seem to suggest, to our view, Moshe did not take his father-in-law's advice. Yitro, a priest of Midian, had no goal other than Chok Mishpat, and for this purpose, officers of fifties or officers of tens would suffice. Moshe, on the other hand, is concerned with, when the people come to me to seek God. It is preferable that the teaching of God's Torah to the nation should be done by Moshe himself, rather than through agents and emissaries. A little while later, the nation moves to Har Sinai, where, in the shade of the Shekhinah which rests upon them, tempers die down. In the camp that remained for about a year in the same place, there were fewer problems. Moshe, as the nation's sole teacher, did not fail them, and they did not fail him. The great downfall came in the second year. When the cloud lifted from about the Mishkan, the Mishkan was dismantled. B'nai Israel journeyed from God's mountain, and God's ark was a great distance from the camp. It was then that the tribulations of the journey set in. Complaints about food were heard once again, as though B'nai Israel had learned nothing during their year-long stay at Har Sinai. Let us examine the complaint that led to the plague, and, for the purposes of our discussion, to Moshe's breakdown, such that he declares, I cannot bear alone all of this nation, for it is too heavy for me. If you will do this to me, then kill me, please, if I have found favor in your eyes. Let me not see my wretchedness. A literal reading of the text would indicate that the focus of the complaint concerned a demand for meat, since B'nai Israel had had enough of the man, this miserable bread. We read, To the nation you shall say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, for you shall eat meat. For you have cried to God, saying, Who will feed us meat? For it was good for us in Egypt, so God will give you meat, and you shall eat. But this presents a problem. If the entire sin of the nation consisted of asking for meat, why is God's reaction, and that of Moshe, so severe, and so different from the reaction to the request for meat in the wilderness of Sin? As we read, B'nai Israel said to them, Would that we had died by God's hand in the land of Egypt, when we dwelled at the fleshpot. And besides, 
what is the difference between the quails that came upon the camp in the wilderness of Sin and the quails that were forcibly driven by a heavenly wind to Kivratatava? We discussed in last week's shiur how the problem with the man was not its taste, which the Torah compares to oil cakes and wafers with honey. The problem lay, rather, with the feelings of hunger that persisted even after eating it. Not all kinds of food give a feeling of satiety, even after a person eats a lot. As we read, He afflicted you and made you hungry, and he fed you the man, which you had not known, nor had your forefathers known. The verses create the impression that the complaint concerned not only the change in food, but also the change in its quantity. Moshe was dumbfounded by the quantity of meat that would be required. From whence shall I have meat to give to this entire nation? Shall sheep and cattle be slaughtered for them, that it may suffice for them? Although he never expresses such surprise over the quails in the wilderness of Sin, nor over the man that came down for them throughout forty years in the desert. From the verses it would appear that the quantity of meat here was indeed astounding, until it came out of their noses, a day's walk in one direction and a day's walk in the other direction, all around the camp, and about two hundred piled high. So the nation arose all of that day and all of that night, and all of the next day, and they gathered the quails. But the best testimony as to the situation in the camp is offered in the textual description, he who gathered least took ten chomarim. Aside from the extraordinary quantity, the verse also indicates that B'nai Israel were not limited in the amount that they gathered in accordance with their request. For two days and one night, the leaders of the Asaf Suf gathered, each limited only by his strength and his ability to shove his neighbor aside and grab for himself. The digestive tracts that had become accustomed to light food in restrained quantities suddenly ballooned with meat that was being guzzled without any restraint or consideration. The terrible plague was a natural consequence. No less terrible was the sight of the unbridled snatching and grabbing. Moshe, who had worked so hard for months on end for the spiritual rehabilitation of the nation following the episode of the Golden Calf, now saw his nation without Mishkan and without Torah. Harsinai and God's Ark were each at a three-day distance in opposite directions, and in the middle, for a distance of one day's journey in every direction, there was just meat, meat, and more meat. Above all of this, the most pathetic and degraded aspect of the nation was not the meat, but rather the plundering. All the rules that had been inculcated in Parshat B'Shalach, each man according to his eating, an omer per person, according to the number of your souls, each man shall take for those who are in his tent, rules of fairness and uprightness, of consideration for others, of proper allocation of resources, all of these had now disappeared into thin air. The lessons of the war against Amalek and the test at Marah were similarly forgotten. Moshe is no longer prepared to continue alone. God places the leadership of the nation upon the shoulders of the seventy elders together with him, a sort of Sanhedrin in a hall of hewn stone. Then Moshe remembers the advice of his father-in-law from a year previously, Alongside the large Sanhedrin, he also appoints smaller regional courts, responsible only for their local areas, not for the entire nation, officers of thousands and officers of hundreds, officers of fifties and officers of tens, just as Yitro had advised. Here there arises another issue, which was brought to my attention by my friend and colleague, Rev. Nathaniel Helfgott. Yitro mentions four characteristics that are necessary for judges, men of valor, who fear God, men of truth, who hate monetary gain. All of these are human traits of greatness. In Parashat Varim, Moshe mentions three different characteristics, men who are wise, understanding, and knowledgeable. Rashi combines these sets of characteristics and posits that the ideal judge possesses seven traits, 
the four mentioned in our parasha and the three in parashat Devarim. He makes no distinction between them. As mentioned, the four traits in our parasha are human traits of greatness. The three others, wisdom, understanding, and being known, are related to the divine spirit, and therefore they are suited to the context of parashat Baha'alotcha, concerning Kivratatava. There God commands that seventy men be gathered, with no mention of any qualities, and promises that he will bestow some of the divine spirit that rests upon Moshe on these seventy elders. Wisdom, understanding, and knowledge are connected specifically to the divine spirit, as many sources testify. The realization of the advice is juxtaposed in the Torah with the advice itself. It is mentioned close to the story of Yitro. But we have already proved from Sefer Dvarim that the appointment of the officers of thousands and officers of hundreds came with B'nai Yisrael's departure from Chorev. The exact timing was after Moshe declared at Kibrat I cannot bear alone all of this nation. Still, there is a great discrepancy between the description in Sefer Dvarim and the description in Sefer Bamidvar. This will occupy the final chapter of our discussion here. We have already expressed our view that aside from the lusting for meat, the Torah emphasizes with the departure from Har Sinai the disintegration of the rules of behavior in accordance with Chok Mishpat. The Torah describes how the orderly nation, encamped with its flags and organized groupings around God's Mishkan, turned into a chaotic mob of meat plunderers alongside the dismantled Mishkan. The Torah is cryptic here, with no explanation for the connection to the next and greatest descent, the story of the spies, the shame of Israel's refusal to go out and fight for the inheritance of their forefathers. Sefer Bamibar does deal with the erosion of Moshe's leadership because of the sin of Kiratatava and his consequent request for a joint leadership, together with the seventy elders. The continuation of the story of the elders' appointment is the episode of Eldad and Medad, who prophesy in the camp, causing Yehoshua to fear for Moshe's leadership. If one stops for a moment to question the justification for Yehoshua's seemingly exaggerated zealousness, the discussion between Miriam and Aharon at Chatzerot comes to prove to what extent Yehoshua was correct. We read, Did God then only speak with Moshe? Did he not also speak with us? With the bestowing of the Divine Spirit upon the collective leadership, there is a gnawing away at Moshe's control. But the Torah does not explicitly connect this with the next parasha, that of the spies. In Sefer Dvarim, the connection is clearer. The appointment of the judges and the diminishing of Moshe's leadership are what lead to the nation's initiative, let us send men before us, and to Moshe being drawn after them. In contrast to previous occasions, where Bnei Israel only complained about having left Egypt, here they openly declare rebellion, let us appoint a head and return to Egypt. Which brings us back to one of the fundamental points in last week's shiur. Rashi explained, If you have been dishonest in measurements and weights, beware of the enemy's advances. The story of Amalek is juxtaposed with the parasha dealing with measurements and weights, just as the parasha of Masaum Rivat Rifidim is juxtaposed with the war against Amalek. Already there, Moshe passed before the nation together with the seventy elders, as happened later at Kivrat Already there, in that war, he did not stand at the head of the fighting forces, but sent Yehoshua. When the sin repeated itself at Kivrat the seventy elders already became fixed positions, Military initiative passed to the hands of the twelve princes of the tribes, and there we see a preview of what was to happen many years later, in Shaul's war against Amalek. From a motley crew of plunderers, there can emerge no worthy military force to conquer the land. And, as we read in the Mishnah, that day was Tisha B'Av.